0: Well, good morning, First Free Church. It's it's great to be with you. As Adam mentioned, we're continuing our series back to the basics, where we're just trying to ask questions about what are the foundational pieces of the Christian faith? As we as we walk with Christ, what are those key pieces? And this is important, uh, whether you're a new Christian or you've walked with Christ for, for many years, because sometimes um, those of us who have uh, spent a long time in the church, we can take for granted some of the foundational pieces of our faith, and, and maybe haven't given them enough thought as, as we maybe think we have. And so um, it, it's so uh, vitally important that we, we go through this. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the uh, opportunity to uh, backpack in the Appalachian Mountains uh, out in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. There's, a, there's a, a chunk of the Appalachian Trail there that uh, is particularly rocky and uh, has a, a very scarce amount of water sources. And if you've ever been doing any physical activity, you know that water is pretty important for uh, those things. And um, as we were going, we started actually running out, the group that I was with, we started running out of water. And uh, there was uh, one uh, place that we missed on our map for the water source, so we had to keep on going. And uh, at one point, we came across a creek uh, as we're walking, and it wasn't on our maps, so we thought well, what the heck, we're, we're thirsty, we're running out of water, let's get some of this. But uh, someone in our group had the, the wisdom to uh, stop and say, maybe we should walk a little bit upstream, see if this is a good source of water. We have filters, but you know, even with filters, they're, I mean, they're just these little dinky things that don't get everything out. And So we walked upstream for a couple minutes, and sure enough, we found there was just this cesspool of just grime and nastiness, and it was just this disgusting, disgusting source of Water, uh, but we were able to, to recognize that. So we moved on, and, and eventually we, we found a, uh, a spring, a natural spring right from the source. Nice, cool, and crisp, and uh, you know, still probably a little disgusting. But um, but we got to the source, and, and that's important because that's that's the cleanest spot. That's the clearest spot um, uh, for us to uh, to drink from. And the same is true when we have issues or we have uh, questions that are risen. It's important for us to get to the source or or get to the root of that question or that problem in order to truly address it. Um, For us, as human beings, we have an ultimate source. And, And it's not a what, it's a who. Our, our source is God, our creator. And so it's so important for us to, to question that source and say, what is, this? what is God or who is God? Because the more we understand who God is, the more we can understand our purpose, the more we can understand reality itself. I mean, we, we live in a culture that's that's confused about so many issues that, that gives so many different messages on humanity, on sexuality, on um, just the way that the world works. And people are debating each other. They're basically debating past each other because they have completely different fundamental views of the way the world works. And so if we wanna have a clear picture the clearest picture of how the world works and, and our purpose here. We need to understand who is God. So, for my portion, as, as Adam said, we're we're going to have a couple pastors come up and and give some uh, different thoughts on on who is God and some in some brief chunks. Um, but for for my time here with you this morning, I just want to answer the question: What what is God? What are God's attributes and characteristics? What, what's God's nature? Um, And uh, we need to be careful, because God, of course, uh, is infinitely complex. And we need to be careful when we talk about this, because it can be really easy for us to pigeonhole God's character and and God's attributes um, into just one or two little areas, because that's our tendency, is we project our personalities, we project our biases onto God and focus in on just a couple areas of God, and, and, and that's dangerous because God is so much more than just a couple of attributes. Uh, An example of this would be in in 1 John. If you you read, uh, there's a passage in 1 John chapter four that says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You may have heard this before that God is love, and, and that's so true, but if we just took that verse, we said, okay, God is love, the end, we figured out God. that There's a lot of problems there because we don't get a complete picture of who God is and how he acts. And, and so we, we project our own uh, thoughts and our own perspectives on what the word love means onto God. And that's an issue because there's plenty of times where God acts in ways throughout the Bible that maybe don't fit into our human worldly definition of love. So we need to make sure that we're taking in uh, every element of scripture, all the the, the ways that, that scripture talks about God's character as he reveals himself in it. And so, um, it's gonna be hard to do that in just a few minutes, but I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna name everything about God. No, I'm just kidding. But we're gonna, we're gonna try to just list um, several different ways, several different characteristics of God to just hopefully get a little bit of a bigger picture here uh, together. But first, I wanna talk about God's nature. When I think of God's nature, I think probably the best place to start is actually one of the hardest things to understand about God. That's the the, the the doctrine or the belief of the Trinity. We believe, as, as Scripture teaches, that God is three persons in one. There are three unique, distinct persons in the Godhead. And, and some other religions, they look at Christians and they say, You guys are polytheists, you believe in multiple gods, you worship multiple gods, and and that's just not true. In fact, even in Scripture, God calls that idolatry, uh, uh, worshiping multiple gods. We worship one God, I mean, Scripture is very clear about that. In Deuteronomy chapter six, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one, it's one God, and yet, there's multiple cases in Scripture where we see three different people within the Godhead. Jesus himself, a member of the Trinity, says in, uh, in John chapter 14, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate who will never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. So right here, Jesus, one of the members of the Trinity is listing the two other members of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit and the Father. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in the very beginning, God says, Let us, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. God's talking in the plural. He's talking about the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all together in the very beginning, existing for eternity in relationship with one another. Another example is Jesus in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three different members of the Trinity. And the doctrine, the belief of the Trinity is so essential to our faith because it has huge implications for us as Christians. For one, the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us something so important, it's that God didn't need us to create, to, or God didn't need to create us. God wasn't sitting up in heaven alone and bored, you know, knocking a ball against the wall just for eternity, just, man, I just need a friend. That's uh, so I'll create human beings. That, that's not true. He existed in eternity with the three members of the God had perfect relationship with each other, And so God didn't need us. He didn't create us out of a need for us. He actually created us as an outpouring of the love that was already existed for eternity in the Trinity. One way of looking at that is in marriage. In a a healthy marriage between a husband and wife, no, no, no couple is looking at each other and saying, we need to work on our marriage, so let's have kids and fix that. Right? If you've had kids, you know, like kids, and if you're considering kids right now and you're like, this is gonna fix everything, stop. Okay, that, that's not a healthy relationship. It, it complicates things, it makes things more difficult. But then why, why do couples have kids? Because of the love that they have for one another, they wanna, they wanna grow that, they wanna expand that into even more relationships, expand that family out of the love that's already there. It certainly makes it more difficult, but it's, but it's an outpouring. The Bible says that children are a fruit, the, the fruit of that love that already exists. And it's this small picture of God creating us even though he already existed in perfect relationship with the three members of the Trinity. That we're an outpouring of that love. And that helps us put us in, in our position. That God doesn't need us. And that's a very helpful, humbling posture to put ourselves in. So um, the other reason that the Trinity is is just so essential for us to learn is that it teaches us a lot about the character of God. If God has existed in eternity in relationship with the three three members of the Trinity, there's so much we can learn from the character of God. And so I'm gonna just list a ton of characteristics here. Okay, we're just gonna spend, spend a couple minutes just rattling off a bunch of different characteristics. And um, the goal isn't here to, to memorize them all. This is an exhaustive list that is covering every single uh, characteristic listed of God, but I'm just trying to hit, hit some of the highlights. Here And so um, I'm I'm gonna list out some of the references too. um, And if you want to get those later, feel free to email me. Uh, You can find that on the website, slancaster at efree.org. And I'd be happy to send you the references. You can spend some time even just reflecting on each of those passages and reflecting on the characteristics of God. But I just wanna uh, talk about how the Trinity teaches us of the characteristics of God. So first the Trinity shows us that God is eternal. God's existed forever. He will exist forever. He, he is the beginning and the end, but he has no beginning and no end. First Timothy uh, 1.7 says this. The, the Trinity uh, shows us God's eternal, but it also shows us that God is all-powerful. God has all power, all authority. He's over all things, omnipotent, all-powerful, that's the word that uh, some scholars will use for that. Ephesians 1, Revelations 19.6, both of those talk about God's all power and authority. God's incomparable in First uh, or 2 Samuel 7.22. God can't be compared with anyone or anything. God's good in Psalm 145. There is no evil in God. He is completely good. He's the definition, the standard of good. He's holy, 1 John 1.5. God's separate from all other things because he is so good and because he's the standard of good, he's separate from all other things. So the Trinity shows us that God's eternal, shows us that he's all powerful, but the Trinity also shows us that God is infinite. He exists everywhere. He's, um, uh, scholars call it omnipresent. Psalm 139 talks about this. Psalm 147 and, and Isaiah 40 talk about the fact that God knows everything. He's omniscient. All-knowing. The Trinity shows us not only that God's infinite or that He's all-powerful, or that He's eternal, the Trinity shows us that God is personal, and this one's my favorite. We have a God who's loving. Ephesians 2 four through5 says that. John 14:6 and, and Titus, chapter one verse two, says that God's truthful. there's no deceit in him, He does not lie. Everything God says is the truth. God shows compassion, 2 Corinthians 1. He's he's merciful, He's gracious. I mean, all throughout Romans, we see the grace and the mercy of God. God judges sin. He he condemns sin, He hates sin, Psalm 5.5. But in Psalm 130, we see that God also offers forgiveness for sin. And then god's wrathful ezekiel 25 exodus 25 says god's jealous Acts 17 talks about the justice of god and those three may be hard that god's wrathful he's he's um, just he's he's jealous i mean and it's helpful to, to compare these to some human relationships you know in a in a marriage if if one spouse uh, is unfaithful to the other spouse uh, a natural response if the spouse loves that husband or wife, they're gonna be jealous. That, that shows that they love them, that they had some jealousy. In the context of, of parent relationships, if a parent has a kid who's been victimized, maybe some, some horrible crime like sexual abuse, a parent is going to be angry, is going to be wrathful, is going to wanna seek justice, and that shows that they love and care for their child. So it may be uncomfortable sometimes to think of God having these negative characteristics, but they show God's love for us. God desires restored relationships with everyone in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this last one, I think this is a great way to kind of encapsulate all of these. In Hebrews 13:8, it says that God is consistent in character. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, we as, as people, we react differently to different situations and we even have different emotions at different parts of the day. <laughs> I mean, even just within a few minutes, we can change our emotions like that. And yet, for the most part, we tend to be pretty consistent. Most people tend to actually be pretty consistent in, in how they act and how they talk throughout their lives. In fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, psychologists will say that around, uh, once you get out of late adolescence, around early 20s, people tend to pretty much stay the same for the rest of their adult life. They act the same, they talk the same, with some exceptions and some things do adapt, but they're pretty much, you can pretty much tell what they're gonna be in another 20 years. And that's why we're so surprised when, when you haven't seen someone in five, 10 years and you see them again, and all of a sudden they're like way different, that's like, Weird, right? Because we're used to people tending to be fairly consistent in character. And what's amazing is that our God is always consistent, never changing. Yes, he reacts and responds differently to different situations. I mean, you can see it throughout his word that God is constantly um, reacting and, and, and is in dynamic relationships with us, with humanity. And yet his character is consistent. That should give us some comfort that the God of the universe is not gonna change tomorrow or the next day or or for the rest of eternity. He's going to be the same forever and ever as he always has been from the beginning of creation. So so who is God? Who is God? God is, is a triune God. He's three people in one who've existed in eternity with one another in a perfect relationship, all powerful over all things, and yet he desires to be in a relationship with us. Next, let's, let's talk a little
1: bit about God's work. Thanks, Steve. The, anything that we would do to understand what God does has to be built on what Steve just shared of who God is. God's actions, uh, what He does, how He how He relates to anything that's not God—that's in, in theological terms, it's been called the works of God. How God interacts and interfaces with anything other than who He is. Sometimes we, we think of this broad category um, of what God's doing and what God has done. We call it His works, and unlike the the Greek gods of mythology, who for the most part. Were kind of lazy gods and they just kind of hung around until they got into mischief or got in a fight with someone or with one another and then that's not the god of the bible the god of the bible is tirelessly working tirelessly creating tirelessly doing things and that's important for us to know the first work of god was to create it says in genesis chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth isaiah 42 5 We read, God the Lord created the heavens and stretched them out. He created the earth and everything in it. He gives breath to everyone, life to everyone who walks the earth. The first two chapters of the Bible explain God's creation. The heavens, the earth, water, sky, plants, animals, human life all come into existence because God worked to create them. Now equally committed Christians hold views that those were literal 24-hour days or millions of years. We're not getting into that debate here. But what we're saying is wherever you land on that, it's God who brought it about. It's not chance, it's not just some happenstance that we exist or that everything that we know exists. The text is clear that everything exists and owes gratitude to God because of his work of creation. And like the other works, this brings, brings to play his power, his authority, brings to play his wisdom and his love. And this work of creation was culminated in Genesis two, verse seven, when he formed man out of the dust of the earth and he endowed mankind with a finite version of many of his own qualities and his own characteristics, his attributes. We share moral attributes with God in in a finite way, like goodness, love, mercy, and grace. We have volitional attributes that allow us to make choices We have intellectual attributes such as wisdom and knowledge that we share with God because we've been created in God's image. And these are limited compared to God, obviously, and there are some characteristics which God did not share with us, like self-existence, omnipresence, which Steve talked about. But we're created in his image and everything that we know has come about because of his creative work. Psalm 121 tells us that God neither sleeps nor slumbers but is always busy protecting his people. In Psalm 107, God is known for his wonderful works to the sons of men, and that leads us to another important work of God. Jeremiah 10:12, we read, The Lord made the heavens and earth by his power. He preserves it by his wisdom. With his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. And in Colossians 1.17, we read, he existed before anything else, and he holds all things together. Ephesians 1.11, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we've received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. These verses speak to not the work of creation, but the work of providence, what God does to sustain what god does to care for everything that he has created everything that exists and not just to care for but to ultimately guide everything toward his own appointed end that's the providence of god another way that we describe his work now it's helpful in both creation but especially in providence not to view god as too closely involved in providence nor too distant in providence that is we we, we had some snow recently, a snowstorm a couple weeks ago, a little bit this last week. Uh, we don't think that God actually had to stop and personally create every single snowflake that fell, or every spring, he has to personally command every flower to bloom. No, God, God created a system that does that. And that system does that naturally, but it does it naturally under his providence, under his sovereignty. And those don't work against each other. This is really important and significant when we consider how sin entered the world. In Genesis chapter 3, man willfully chose to sin. We willfully choose to sin. Even, even as followers of Christ, we sometimes disobey and sin against God. We go too far one way and it implicates God in the guilt of sin and makes him responsible for sin, which that's not true we go too far the other way and we have a God who simply just sits back and has to wait and figure out how to respond to us because we are so unpredictable and both of those extremes are wrong we have to find some place in the middle which is a place of mystery it's a place of great mystery that God created humanity with the ability to choose and to make choices which can oftentimes be bad choices but yet, even in those bad choices, God remains sovereign and can ultimately do his work even in those ways. We, I read earlier Ephesians 1, 11. I think this is a good verse for this. Those he called, he works everything into conformity to the purpose of his will. Everything. And it's easy when life's going our way or we're doing things well, that of course God uses those things for his will. But what about our brokenness? What about our sin? What about the ways people sin against us? I know personally, I have in my life, and unfortunately as much as I don't want to, still hurt people in my sinful activities and actions and words and attitudes. And and I regret that. And God did not author the sin in my life that has wounded other people, but when those sins are repented of and there's forgiveness, God can take even, even the sin that we've committed and the brokenness and the things that are not according to his will and bend them into conformity to the purpose of his will in some way. So I look back at the sin in my life in the past that's been forgiven and now it's part of God's perfect plan. Not that the sin was, but his sovereignty has made it such that now he is using it to his own ends. Mystery. I'm not gonna fully figure that out, but that's what the scriptures teach us. Similar discussion could be made around the topic of human suffering. Somehow God's oversight and his sovereignty allows this world to be filled with deep suffering, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational pain that we feel. And sometimes it's not even, sometimes it's worse when it's not my pain, but it's someone I love who's in pain. It's someone I love who's in chronic pain and there just doesn't seem to be any relief. Sometimes that pain doesn't go away despite repeated pleas to God. This is part of that stain of sin on all humanity. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says, we experience God's mercy and love when we go through trials and pain so that we can in turn help others who go through similar trials. So ultimately, God's purpose is worked out even as we go through the suffering of this world. To be sure, we can't fully understand the way God does his work. You wouldn't be God if we could understand it. If we could understand how God does things, then we would be the ones in the driver's seat. We trust his goodness, we trust his faithfulness with our meager understanding, and that's, that's all it is. Even if we've been students of the word of God for years and we've studied it and we master this book that is the word of God to us, we have to understand that even this Bible was God's attempt to condescend to communicate to us something we might understand. It's like a professor of physics going to a kindergarten room and trying to teach advanced physics. It's like, all right, thanks for helping us to try to understand what you think at that level and what you do. Fortunately, the work of God, though, didn't end with creation and providence, but it also goes on with redemption. When you look at the Bible, and chapters are something we put on, man put on the Bible. It wasn't written with chapters, but to use it since we have it. The first couple of chapters are creation, and then there's one chapter that's the fall. And we're at Genesis 3. From that point on, the whole rest of the Bible is focused on the work that is redemption, the work that's restoration, the work of God that's trying to bring about His ultimate end. The rest of the story is how He redeems us from judgment and the consequences of sin. So who is God? He's the God who created all things. He's the God who continues to work all things together for his ultimate glory. And he's a God who will continue to work his mission and his glory until it is all restored. Let's talk now about his mission.
2: Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilization, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Star Trek had a great mission. Indiana Jones had a great mission to recover artifacts so that they could be in a museum and not in some rich person's home. Luke Skywalker had a great mission to go confront Darth Vader so that he could finally become a real Jedi. There's something about us that loves a good mission to have purpose, to have something that we're striving for, something that we're, we're pursuing, that we are moving toward. And when we think about our mission as Christians, we often think about it in terms of the mission that God has for us, the God that we've just been talking about this morning. What is it that he wants us to do? What is it that he wants us to accomplish? What's his purpose for us? And, and we talk that way and we think about that, and that's not necessarily a, a terrible way to think about it, but I do want to suggest to you today that it's probably not the best way to think about God and mission. The idea that God has a mission for us and has a mission for you. See, God is not some wise sage that's sending you on a mission like Yoda sent Luke. God is not sending missionaries like maverick explorers to just go out on their own alone and reach people who are far from God, even though that's often how we think about it. But that's not the best way to think about God and his mission. The mission of God is really more about what he is doing and what he invites us to be a part of. It's more accurate than saying God has a mission for his people to say that God has a mission and invites his people to be a part of it. It's what God is doing in this world. and We don't often think about it that way, but there was a man, Christopher J.H. Wright, who wrote, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Let me say that again because I think it's important that we catch that distinction. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. He goes on to say, mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. So, what exactly is it that makes up God's mission, God's purpose? What is He trying to accomplish in the world right now? As we're going about our everyday lives and coming here to church and trying to live for Him in this world, what is God doing at the same time? There's a a phrase for this in the Latin that missiologists use called the Missio Dei. The Missio Dei means the mission of God. What is God doing in this world? What is His mission? There are some people believe that, that God doesn't exist at all. And so, of course, for them, there is no mission of God. There are some people that believe that, that God exists, um, but he's not really doing anything in this world. So there is no mission of God really in this world. He made it, and then he just sort of let it go and let it run. And then there are some people that believe that God made it, and he continues to be involved in some way. But the missio dei for them is actually God working through all the different religions. and and that all faiths, all roads lead to God. What we wanna do today in the few minutes we have left is just go back to the source, go back to God's word and say, what is the Missio Dei? What is God's mission? What is he doing in this world and and what's our response to that? We're gonna start in a bit of an unusual place. We're gonna be in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk. So if you wanna turn there, you can. We'll put it on the screens as well, Habakkuk chapter two. Let me just give you a little background so that you understand what we're about to read. Habakkuk is a prophet, writes at a time when the nation of Israel is not living according to God's instructions and so that the people are very wicked and Habakkuk is looking around him at the nation around him and going this country is just just wicked and and awful and sinful and and God how long are you going to let them get away with this why do I have to keep looking at all this evil all around me from the people that are supposed to be your people and God responds to Habakkuk and says well you know what judgment is coming In fact, I'm going to use the nations around Israel to bring judgment on the people of Israel for the wickedness that they have done. And Habakkuk's like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Those people are worse than we are. They're super wicked. Like if we're wicked, they're ultra wicked. What about judgment for them, God? And God says, yeah, judgment for them is coming too. And everyone will be judged. And it's in the middle of that that we get some some hint as to what God is working toward in his mission. So we're in Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse two, and here is what the God of the universe says to this prophet Habakkuk. Then the Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to the others. Now think about this. This is God telling Habakkuk, write this down because I want more people to know about this. We're those more people right now. We're those people getting those tablets, very different kind of tablet than what we have today, but we're those people who are getting that message delivered to us that God told Habakkuk to write down. This vision, he says, is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. This is a promise. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. And then God goes on to talk in the next several verses about the judgment that he's going to bring on wicked people, the judgment that is is coming. In the middle of all of that discussion of the judgment for the wicked that will happen in the future, God says this, for as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. That is what God is working toward ultimately. All people will know his glory It's the first point I'm going to make for today, which is God's glory will be known to everyone in the world. It's the end game. It's what's going to happen. All of the world will know his glory. You know how water fills the seas and fills the oceans? Water water seeks level, and it fills every little crack to get there. I know this because I have wood floors, and I have three kids that like to spill water. And so the water will seep into every crack possible in those wood floors, and then you know what happens. It makes all sorts of mess because water wants to get into every little crevice, every little area. And God uses that as an analogy to say, just as water just fills everything it has the opportunity to, the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of my glory. Every single person is going to know my glory one day. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. There are many people that, that don't believe in God or have distorted views about God, but God one day will make sure that every single person is aware of his glory. That's, that's what he's working toward in his mission. That's the end game. Now let's work back from there. What is God doing? What are the steps in his mission that are gonna get us to that point? We're gonna go to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking with his disciples about the future, what's gonna happen in the future. And he, he tells them that there will be false messiahs There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquakes and persecution of Christians. And then he says this in verse 14. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. So that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. So from Habakkuk, we learned that the the ultimate end of all of this in God's mission is, I'm going to make my glory known to everybody. Everyone's going to be aware of the glory of God one day. But even before that happens, Jesus says the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. Everyone's going to know about this good news. So that's our second point. God's good news will be preached to the whole world. That's a part of God's mission. Everyone will know his glory one day. Before that happens, God's good news will be preached to the whole world. And what are we talking about when we say good news? Let's back up even further. We're going to go to Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, Jesus was just baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit came down and descended on him like a dove. He was filled with the Spirit's power. He started his earthly ministry, started doing miracles. He went around to different synagogues preaching and teaching. And it was in Nazareth, his hometown, that someone brought him the scroll of Isaiah. And he opened it up and he read it. And here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news. That's that same phrase, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. All of that was from a prophecy in Isaiah, a scroll that Jesus read in Nazareth, in the synagogue in Nazareth. And then the Bible says that he rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down, all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, wondering, what is he about to say? Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. This is a part of God's mission that he would send his son into the world to proclaim this good news. The Lord's favor is here. It's the next point we're going to make. God the son was anointed to bring this good news of freedom, healing, and the Lord's favor. God's mission written about so long ago in Isaiah Jesus says, this is now fulfilled in me. I'm the one that's here to proclaim the good news. I'm the one that's here to bring freedom, to bring healing, to release the captives. And of course, Jesus is referring to those that are captive to sin. The time of the Lord's favor has come. This is all part of God's mission. We can see another aspect of this in John chapter 3. You probably know, many of you, John three sixteen. It's a, it's a very famous verse. It says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. That's Jesus Christ. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, that's a part of the mission, but we see an even even greater part of it when we look at the next verse. In verse 17, God sent his son into the world. That's part of the mission right there. That's what God is doing to accomplish his mission. He's sending his son into the world. But why? Not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. See, God has every right to condemn the world because we've all rejected him. At one point or another, we've all rejected him. We've all done things that are contrary to what he wants for us. And yet, God's mission was not to condemn the world, not to judge the world, but for people to have an opportunity to be made right with him. And so our next point is God's good news is that he made a way for people to be free from sin and part of his family forever. This is the mission of God. That one day in the future, all people will know his glory. That before that happens, the good news will be preached throughout the entire world. That good news is also part of his mission. That God sent his son into the world to make a way for people to have freedom and healing and be released from captivity, to have forgiveness of sins, to be made right with God, to be a part of his family. And one day in the future, God's mission is going to be complete and every single person will know that he is God, will know his glory. The Bible also tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So that means that at some point in the future, every single person will recognize and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that God is the glorious creator of the universe, even if they never did so in this earthly lifetime. They have a chance right now to believe in him willingly. But one day, every single person will know that person that you think of as the most evil, evil person you can think of in the history of the world, that person one day will say out of their own mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I wish I had believed it when I was on this earth. This is the mission of God. We often think of God's mission for us in the terms of what he wants us to do, but I'm here to tell you, he is doing it. He's doing his work. He will do his work with or without you, but he invites you to be a part of it. The Bible calls us co-laborers. See, when you go out there to to share your faith with someone, share the good news with someone, you may feel like you're kind of going it alone. You're out there, you're not. You're not going alone. God is already working in front of you. He's already working on people's hearts. He's preparing the way. It's him that does the work. He just invites us to be a part of the process. And so we don't need to feel anxious, or lonely, or scared, or fearful. Because really, we're not the ones that all of this rests on. God has his mission. He invites us to be a part of it. And it's important for us to remember who's really doing the work in the world. It's not all on us. But don't you want to be a part of that mission? Don't you want to be involved in that? I want to pray for you right now and pray that God would Help us to have the boldness to be a part of his mission. Heavenly Father, we've learned a lot about you today. Probably for many of us, it's it's just a refresher, a reminder, but an important one, God. To be reminded that you are doing work in this world that we can't even imagine. You are accomplishing things that we know nothing about, and yet we're invited to be a part of it. You've given us this opportunity to be ambassadors for you. You've said, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone is sent to... Deliver the good news to them. And and Lord, we want to be a part of your mission in this world. Help us to have the right mindset as we approach what you are doing. Help us to recognize that it's you that are doing it and we get to be a part of it. And Lord, I pray that we would not sit on the sidelines. That we would not say, well, that's for someone else to do. Well, God's doing it anyway, so I'm not going to be a part of it. You have chosen that you want to work through us and, and use us to accomplish your mission. So help us to, with the right heart and the right motivation, be engaged in your mission this week. Maybe there's someone at work or at school or in our neighborhood that we know that that you're working in their heart, and there's an opportunity for us to have a conversation with them about you. Lord, help us to not shy away from that. God, I pray that you would make it clear and plain to us where you're inviting us to be a part of the work that you are already doing, Lord, so we can join you in your mission.